Good morning. I'll be reading today from Genesis 3, verses 7 through 11 and verse 21. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed together fig leaves and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God said to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Amen. So we're, you know, when you do a series in Genesis and you tell that to people, I've been shopping the idea around for a while that we're going to do a series in Genesis for the next seven or eight weeks. You always get the same stuff. Ooh, oh, oh, Genesis. Okay. Are you going to tell us how old the earth is? No, I'm not going to in this series. Are we going to talk about whether or not Noah's flood was worldwide? We're not going to talk about that in this series. Many of the questions that we talk about in Genesis are really important questions. And over coffee on Sunday afternoon, I would love to talk about those questions. But sometimes when we talk about Genesis, we miss the most important thing about the beginning of Genesis, which is the state of humanity in sin apart from God and what God has done to remedy our situation through his son Jesus. That's the most important thing that the opening chapters of Genesis reveal for us. So this morning... We're going to talk about Adam and Eve, but we're going to talk about a facet of Adam and Eve that you may not have thought about before. We're going to talk about what happens when Adam and Eve's eyes are open and they see their condition for what it really is and what God does about it. I'll tell you a story to capture what it is we're talking about this morning. In 2021, the Callisons, who are here this morning, Roger and Nikki Callison, and Laura and I went down to the Big 12 Championship in Dallas. And my job, my only job, actually, was to bring the parking pass. So we had some friends that had season tickets that weren't going to go, so they sent us their parking pass, and I pulled it up on the SeatGeek app. I made sure everything looked good. I had it up on my phone. We met at a restaurant a little ways away, and then we got in the car together, and we drove up. And so when we get up, it's like the front parking lot. And for those of you that have been here before, you realize I've got all kinds of trouble with parking passes uh, going to AT&T Stadium. But we get up there, and as we enter the parking lot, the lady comes over with the scanner, and she scans the QR code on the app, and it doesn't work. And I was like, okay, I'll try, it, try it again real quick and do it again. And then we do that whole thing where it's like, oh, maybe it needs to be bigger. Maybe it needs to be smaller. Maybe I need to lock my phone and turn up the brightness. Nothing is working. And so the lady's like, you know what, I, I need to go get my supervisor. So she walks across the parking lot, and at that time, everybody in the back's like, hey, someone, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it must be the scanner. Well, at that moment, I scrolled down on the parking pass, and it says Big 12 Championship, AT&T Stadium, QR code, but then it says November whatever day, 2019. <laughs> so immediately, I just scroll back up. I'm like... I don't want anybody to see that. Looking over my shoulder like, anybody see that? I just scroll right back up, and the supervisor comes over. 
And she's like, there must be something up with your parking pass. I'm like, nope, I think the parking pass is fine. And so she scans it again, doesn't work, doesn't work. And then she said, and I'm starting to sweat here. I'm starting to get real nervous. She says, sir, this must be on us. Just go enjoy your day at AT&T Stadium. So we pull in, we go in, it was great. I didn't even have the courage to tell Roger and Nikki until lunch after the game. I was so nervous about it. And if you've been in a situation like that, you realize that one of the hardest things in being a human is that somebody might realize that you're not all you look to be. You're not really what appears on the outside. Maybe it's guilt, maybe it's imposter syndrome, maybe it's being found out, maybe it's something that you haven't done, but if somebody just knew the core of who you are, their opinion about you would change immediately. In our story this morning with Adam and Eve, the fundamental truth is Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were created good. In fact, after all the creation and God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden, he says, this is very good. They were created to be in intimate fellowship with God, walking with him in the garden, that there would be a totally transparent relationship with God. In fact, sometimes we miss this when we read the text in English, but Eden is a paradise. That's what this all describes for somebody. This is a paradise garden of God, his dwelling on the earth, that one little place where God has chosen to walk around on earth with his people. And the goal for them was to walk with God and spread the glory of his kingdom across the whole earth. Do you know that Eden, which is an area in ancient Mesopotamia, and the Garden of Eden, which is a little section of Eden, wasn't ever supposed to be just a garden. It was supposed to be like a seed that through Adam and Eve's leadership and stewardship would expand and cover the entire earth. But you know how the story goes. A serpent comes into the garden. And what the serpent is really trying to do more than anything is drive a wedge between Adam and Eve and God. The main lie of the serpent, which is expressed as, did God really say, is the lie that we don't really need God. See, that's, that's what the serpent is actually up to. He's, he's not just trying to get them to disbelieve what God said. He's after something so much more insidious than that. The serpent is trying to convince them that they don't need God, they don't need to do things his way, and that they will be fine, maybe even better if they do it their own way. So what happens is Eve, with Adam standing right next to her, takes the fruit and eats it, disobeys God's command. They take hold of the knowledge of good and evil so that they can then be the arbiters of what is right and wrong. What's interesting about this passage is we, we think about it like they sinned in that moment. They broke God's law. But think about what happens. They take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in another circumstance, should just mean that you now get to discern between what's right and wrong. But as they take the fruit and, and as they eat it, as they disobey God, they become knowledgeable about good and evil. But the problem is they realize that they are on the wrong side of the divide. See, the knowledge of good and evil is a very good thing if you are perfect. But the knowledge of good and evil is a terrible thing if you are evil. 
What happens to Adam and Eve, and I want to walk you through this part of the story, is first, after they take the fruit, they realize that they are naked. Okay, this, this is such an odd detail in this story. And it's, it's one of those where you hear it so many times, you're like, of course they do. But if you step back for a minute, why is this detail in this story? They realize that they are naked. Notice the contrast in this story. In chapter 2, verse 25, when God creates them and puts them in the garden, he talks about marriage between Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, that they were made for each other. And then he says, and the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. In Hebrew and in English, then and now, nakedness and shame go together. So it, it's, it's the same the way we use it. Um, nakedness is associated with feeling exposed. Think about all the stress dreams you have where it's like totally normal life. You're doing something you would never think twice about, but you forgot your shirt or your pants or, you know, you're exposed. It's, it's one of the most stressful things in life, and it's associated then and now with this concept. They were naked and unashamed, and all of a sudden, now that they've sinned and they know it, they realize that they're exposed. They're ashamed. They feel guilt and shame over what they have done. So what is shame? I think Brene Brown's work has been really helpful on this topic, not always in what to do with shame, but in identifying shame. She is crystal clear. Guilt is action-oriented. I have done something wrong. It is outward focus. Something that I have done or contributed to is wrong. But guilt, when it isn't dealt with, becomes shame when it moves internal. Guilt is I have done something wrong. Shame is, I am wrong. There is something about me that's wrong. Shame is the personal component of not just, I did something, but there is something wrong with me. The condition we find ourselves in where we might say, I'm not what I should be, that's shame. Or it's not just that the world is wrong, but I am a part of that. I'm contributing to that. There's something bent or something fallen or something not right about me. That's shame. A few years ago, they did an experiment on college campuses. I always love to read about these because the things they get college kids to do in these experiments is just amazing. They took college students, they split them into two groups, and in the first group, they said, we are researching the prevalence of cheating on college campuses. And what they did was they said, you pick a number between 1 and 10, and then they tell them, if it's even, we will give you $5. They lost so much money on this experiment. I mean, crazy amount of people that they said, hey, think of a number between 1 and 10. Don't tell me the number, but if it's even, you can take these, this $5. They lost tons of money. Almost everybody, it turns out, was thinking of an even number. Then they, but then with the second group, they did something slightly different. In the instructions before the experiment, instead of saying, we're researching cheating on college campuses, they said, we're trying to discover how many cheaters there are on college campuses. Do you know that they lost almost no money in that experiment? Here's the difference. It's easy to keep something at arm, arm's length and say, yeah, there's cheating out there in the world. 
Most of us probably would be in the $5 group there. Hey, if we're just, I mean, prevalence of cheating, there's cheating out there, I'll take the $5. But when you make it personal, we're trying to identify who in this room is a cheater. That becomes more personal. In fact, people shy away in large percentages from being called a cheater. What this story tells us is the problem in the human condition is not just there's sin out there in the world. It's that we are sinners. We are sinners. It goes all the way down. Jesus says, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. It's not just a series of bad choices. It's the whole condition we find ourselves in that because of sin, we have been alienated from God. We have been characterized by our sin such that when in the early 1900s, when the Times of London put out a question, what's wrong with the world today? The best answer came from G.K. Chesterton who wrote, Dear Sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's the condition. It's not just sin out there or I sometimes do sin. What this story reveals to us is we are sinners. We are sinful. We are in danger of being exposed for who we really are. But notice the second thing that happens in this story. So after, they, after their eyes are open, as Jill read for us, they realize that they are naked. They realize that they're exposed, and their eyes are open, and they sew fig leaves together and make themselves a covering, a loincloth. This is the first clothing line in history, fig leaves by Eve. And they cover themselves thinking, if we can just cover up, then things will go back to normal. If we can just orchestrate a way to cover our guilt, cover our shame, then things will go back to normal. But you know this, and I know this, it's amazing what guilt can ruin in your life. It's amazing how otherwise great things, when you're racked with shame, can change on a dime. When a few years ago, my brother Tucker and I went to the Met in New York City, we were going to see Don Giovanni. We get there, and we're dressed in our tuxes, we're looking great, we're ready to enjoy it, and we're walking around the Met, and we realize there's this group off by itself with all kinds of great food and drinks, and we're like, we got to get over there. we got to figure out what's going on over there. So we walk up right to the edge of the banister and just kind of lean there and look in and see what's going on. We figure out it's the young friends of the Met. And we're like, we we got to be in that. I want to be a young friend of the Met. I want to I participate in that. And so we kind of edge our way over to the place where they're going in, and there's these two ladies that are standing there ominously forbidding people to come in, like the flaming cherub with the sword at the edge of the Garden of Eden who's not allowing them to get in. And we say, what's going on in there? What's, what, what is this? And they said, well, it's the young friends of the Met. Are you guys in the group? And we're like, oh, no, we're from Oklahoma City. You know, just us country folk from flyover country here at the big city. And the lady says, well, you know what? I'm about to take my break. I'm going to go over there for about five minutes. And if you guys are in there, when I come back, I won't say anything. So sure enough, she leaves. We go in. But we get in there, and we're taking part in all the festivities, trying to look the part, trying to act the part, you know, inventing elaborate backstories for ourselves. But when we get in there, we realize pretty quickly, everybody has a name tag. And we don't. 
And so every interaction is now spoiled. We ended up just standing there in the corner talking to ourselves because everybody we talked to knew that we didn't belong there. We weren't part of the club. We didn't have the name tags. We were dressed the part. We were acting the part, but we did not belong there at all. And it was an otherwise great experience, and we do laugh looking back at it, but it was so ruined by the fact that we knew we didn't measure up. We didn't belong. We hadn't paid the dues. We didn't do what you needed to do to be a part of that group. And that's what happens after the fall is every person in one way or another is trying to do something with your shame and your guilt. Every person is opting for some strategy or another to deal with the fact that you know things aren't quite right. You can pretend like guilt doesn't exist. That's what Adam and Eve do. They just cover up and and they expect God to be like, did you get a haircut? Is something different with you? And they just pretend like we'll act like we know what we're doing and we hope nobody finds out. You can put it on other people. This is getting more and more popular. This is basically what Freud was all about. The only reason you feel bad is because of the expectations of other people. It's what we talk about now is stigma. If there weren't a stigma around this, you wouldn't feel bad. So what you need to do is just confront the stigma, and then you'll feel better about yourself. You can claim to be a victim, right? This is playing out in our culture every day. If you are a victim, basically what you do is you take that as an identity, you say, maybe I did something wrong, but it's nothing compared to the wrong that's been done to me. And maybe that'll make me feel better. You can try to earn your way out of it. If I can just do enough great things, then people will see what an awesome person I am. You can take vengeance on other people. If I punish all the other evildoers, then I will finally feel good about myself. But every one of these strategies is a fig leaf. Every single one of these is a human attempt to deal with a problem that only God can deal with. Fig leaves are anything we do to manage our appearance to other people, to cope, to control, to set up a defense mechanism, anything possible but being ourselves around God and other people is a fig leaf. And we have gotten great at constructing fig leaves. I think the word for us now in our moment is the word curation. We live in a world where you curate an identity to the world so that they don't see the real you, right? Whether it's social media or your business profile or the things that you write or the things that you say, you are creating a false self, a mask, so that people will see that instead of you. It's the phenomenon where if you've ever seen somebody's profile on social media, but you've never met them, and then you meet them in person, you go, whoa, that's different. (laughs) That's what we're all afraid of, right? That's what every single person is afraid of, is that that pseudo-self might come down and people would see you for who you really are. Some people would say, well, I I kind of like my fig leaves. I actually have a very good-looking set of fig leaves, and it's working for me. But the problem that Adam and Eve experience is, what happens when it rains? What happens when the wind blows? These fig leaves, the problem is, they last for a little bit, but they always end up failing. Some, some scholars, it's not, this is not universal, but some scholars believe that this word for fig leaves in Genesis is actually, the, or the covering that they make is, is the word for loincloth. And if this is really true to the sense that that word was used, it's a hilarious picture of what happens when we construct these facades. Because a loincloth only covers the front. 
And that's what a fig leaf does for us. It always leaves blind spots. It always leaves us exposed. Coping mechanisms eventually always leak. But watch what God does. In the third part of this story, you've got to see in verse 21, the Lord God comes into the garden, and he's looking for Adam and Eve, and he asks one of the most penetrating questions in all of Scripture, where are you? Where are you? This isn't a question of geography, okay? God, God knows where they are physically. Where are you spiritually? You're not as near to me as you were before this happened. There's something in between us now. Where are you? Adam and Eve come to the Lord and they tell him what they've done. And after God tells them the consequences of their sin, God does something amazing in this passage. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments, skins, and clothed them. God takes it upon himself to solve the problem. God sees them, he sees their sin, he sees the inadequacy of what they've done to try to redeem themselves, and God takes it upon himself to clothe them. This is the most amazing picture of the gospel. So you get a promise of the gospel in 3.15 that someday, even though there's enmity between the woman and the serpent, and between her offspring, the human race, and his There will be one who will bruise the head of the serpent, who will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will strike his heel, but we know now he won't stay dead from the bite of the serpent. He will rise to new life. That's the promise of the gospel, the first one you get in Scripture. But the first picture you get is God tenderly coming to Adam and Eve, despite what they have done, and looking at their attempts to make things right and saying, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take the life of another to cover you. This is a picture that Jesus came not to condemn us for our sin, since we already stand condemned, but to clothe us. See, this is the wonderful part of the gospel. that In 1 Peter 3, it says, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. See, Martin Luther called this the great exchange, that we find ourselves in dirty, soiled clothes, and we see Christ in brilliant, white, righteous clothing. And what happens when you come to Christ and confess your sin and trust in him is he takes his clothing and puts it on you. And you take your clothing and put it on him. And when he went to the cross, he was wearing all of our fig leaves so that we could wear his white, righteous garments and be admitted into the feast of the Father. Clothing in the Bible everywhere is significant. It's almost always an indicator of your status before God. Are you righteous or unrighteous? Are you faithful or unfaithful? Are you sinful or are you free? In, in the story of Joseph, which we'll get to in about seven weeks, You know, Joseph is distinguished because his father gives him a brilliant, beautiful, technicolor dream coat. And he wears that as a sign of his father's favor. He is the favored child because he has the clothing of the favored 
child. The priests are set apart from everybody else, not because of what they do, but because of what they wear. They wear garments designed to go into the presence of God. Christians are described dressed in a specific dress that indicates, this is my beloved child. He says in Isaiah 1, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be washed as white as snow. We know this in some of our great hymns, but it's usually like in the third verse, so we don't think of it very often. In uh, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness, it says, When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. In Come Now Found, it says, On that day when free from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing his sovereign grace. You have to have new clothing to go before the Father. You have to do something with your guilt. You have to do something with your shame to come back to the Father. Most people know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But do you know John 3.17? It says, For Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Now, alarm bells for some people are going off like, what do you mean no condemnation? Sin brings condemnation, but John knows this. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, will never be condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already. Already in your sin, already condemned, already found wanting, already trying to cover up something you could never get rid of because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But whoever believes in him is clothed in his clothing, in his righteousness. But the condemnation is hard to get rid of. See, here's, here's the stark difference. In Ed Welch's book, A Small Book About Why We Hide, which if this resonates with you, buy that book. It's the most amazing devotional about how we walk in our identity with God. He says, everybody longs to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But guilt in our life tries to convince us that it'll actually be something more like, forgiven, but I'm disappointed. You're in, but you could have done better. I love you because I have to. Guilt tries to convince us that that's God's approach to us. But in Christ, you don't have to wait to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because when God sees you in Christ, he no longer sees those things. He says, this is my beloved son. This is the daughter that I love. I am proud of you. I love you. I like to be around you. I want you to walk with me. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to see you for who you are, and I want you to see me for who I am, and I'm going to write my name on you forever, and I'm going to clothe you in brilliant white clothing so that you can be with me forever. That's what God thinks about you if you're in Christ. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation, no sin, no separation. He sees you 
He clothes you. He adopts you. He brings you home into his family. Many of you know how the story at the Met ends. I have talked about it probably a couple of times, but the way the story started was with us feeling out of place. And we went that day, and it was, it was wonderful. But the next day, my brother's flight got canceled, and so he went back for the Sunday afternoon showing. And this one was different. It was a, it was a different opera. There was a world-famous conductor, and he knew that it would be sold out, so he went and bought what are called standing tickets, where you don't actually get a seat, but you can hang out in the lobby, and if there's room, you can, you can stand in the back and watch. And so he's standing there at the back, getting ready for the show to start, and this guy walks up to him and says, are you here by yourself? And he says, yeah, my, my flight got canceled, my brother was here, but I just thought I'd come back for this afternoon show. And he said, well, my wife didn't come, why don't, why don't you come with me? And so he says, sure, and he begins to follow him down the aisle, and they just go further towards the front and further towards the front and further until they get to the second row. And they sit in the very middle, like where you could grab the conductor's tails if you wanted to. And he sits there knowing this is different than the time before because he's been invited. He's been paid for. He's in a seat with a ticket that has that number on it. This is where he belongs. That's the offer of Christ to you. If you feel like you don't belong, if you feel ashamed, if you feel guilty, throw yourself on him. He has paid for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. As we sang earlier, we thank you that the blood of Christ that pays for sin has been applied to us. Father, that we who are totally unworthy have been welcomed by your son Jesus into the family. Father, clothe us this morning. Help us not just to say we have a new identity, but to live like it to live with the confidence and the assurance and the love of being children of God. Father, I pray for anybody that doesn't know that this morning, that they would join your family today. In Jesus' name we pray.